0: And Lord God, we pray tonight that with our minds in our thinking and our hearts in our loving, we might serve the purposes of the glory of that same Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Do please sit. Well, it has not been a good week uh, for President Putin. You'll realize that he has uh, lost the man in government that he wanted to see in government in the uh, Ukraine, President uh, Yanukovych. Uh, And on top of that, Russia lost in the ice hockey. It makes you wonder who's in charge. It's not often, I, I don't think, that we have this sense waking up to the news day by day. I'm not sure it was even the same... Uh, when uh, Egypt was kicking off, but we don't have uh, this sense very often of wondering how a political situation will have changed by the morning. Who is in charge in Ukraine? Is it uh, President Yanukovych? Is it Yulia Tymoshenko? Is it uh, Klitschko? Uh, Who's in charge? Or is it Putin behind it all? Well, of course, you know the answer because it's church. You know the answer is Jesus. But that kind of question is what concerns us as we look at Isaiah 45 this evening. Would you please turn to it? It's long. It's not particularly easy, so I've done a pretty little slide for you. Thank you, Thomas. Ta-da. Right. Uh, Let's set the scene. Uh, once again, because there are always those who've not been here for other parts of this series in Isaiah. Isaiah knows that God's people are going to go into exile, but he also sees beyond that to the end of their exile. And Isaiah is now in a position to put a name to the one who will in their future bring their exile to an end. Cyrus is a Persian from way out east, uh, over against where Jerusalem is. The Persians are going to defeat the Assyrians, Assyrians are in the northeast, and they're going to bring a very different politics to the known world. It's not centralised, but devolved. It's not exactly going to be a cuddly democracy, but it was entirely unique. For its time. Cyrus is going to be the emperor who lets the people go back to their land. But this chapter is so much more than about uh, Cyrus. I went for a walk, a long walk yesterday in the countryside. Uh, There was birdsong, there were flowers in the fields, there was blossom on the trees, the sun was warm. Now, officially, It is not yet spring. But there were hints of spring, the promise of spring. And this chapter has hints, whispers. What's going on with Cyrus is huge, but what's going on with God and his people is huger still. You and I, we live in the springtime that this very chapter is opening up. So let's head into it, and I'll use the divisions, roughly, that you've uh, got on the screen. These chapters, the 40s onwards, begin to speak of God's servant, and God will take hold of his hand, the hand of his servant, to uphold justice. We've learned that already, but now almost by deliberate offence, Isaiah Chapter 45, verse 1. Isaiah turns to describe someone else that he calls God's anointed. Well, what's the normal word for anointed? Not a trick question. Thank you, Messiah. Uh, Astonishing. Right in the middle of... uh, this prophecy about the great servant who is coming, we hear about a different one called a Messiah. It, all it means is anointed. And it is the, the one, again, whose right hand I take hold of, verse 1. From the servant who will follow the grain of God's character, we turn to the anointed one who will do God's will, but whether he intends to or not. And what's this Cyrus going to be like in God's hands? Well, According to those first few verses, he's going to be a conqueror. He will be an enforcer of peace because the gates that he opens will not need to be shut at night. He will be granted the help of Yahweh, verse 2, and he will become wealthy, verse 3. He will do all this for the sake of God's people, verse 4, even though he doesn't know Israel's God, verse 5. But this is the point Others will know. Cyrus, you may not know, but others are going to be watching and they will know because of the very fact of this prophecy that there is to be a Cyrus in the future who will do all this. And that prophecy is going to have its effect. It will obviously strengthen God's own people languishing in exile, wondering about their future. Then they will hear this name, Cyrus. Have you heard? Cyrus, Cyrus. And it will go out like a whisper. And in exile, though it will be many decades from now, they will wonder again and think, oh yes, do you remember? But it's also going to be a public prophecy, so that even though the people of Israel will soon seem very much diminished, it will be known that this one, Cyrus, was prophesied. And if a God can let you know who is going to capture you, And who is going to release you? Then that is a sovereign and a mighty God. Sovereign. That is, God is utterly the master of all that is. We're going to hear more later. But for the moment, Isaiah is brought to speak out Yahweh's mastery over the normal oppositions of life. So verse 6 from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, from east to west. The oppositions of the stuff of life, uh, light itself and darkness, verse 7. And there may have been a hint there, because uh, the Persians worshipped the God of light and reckoned that uh, the God of darkness was an equal and opposite force, So is Isaiah saying, well, no, no. No, my God is in charge of both. And then oppositions again in verse 7 of the circumstances of human life. I bring prosperity and I create disaster. The Lord God Yahweh is behind it all. And that sovereignty comes, as we've seen before, from his character as the one who makes and as the one who saves. In verse 8. He is maker. His scale is the whole earth. The heavens are raining down. The clouds, the earth, the springs of water, all are displaying the character of God as simply overwhelmingly good. And there in verse 8 is is a word that whenever I see it, I want to explain it because it's so feeble a word in our day. Let righteousness grow with it. And for us, that's an abstract virtue. And most of the time that we use it, we attach it to the word self to make self-righteousness. This could not be further from that. When God is described as righteous, when he has righteousness, what it means is the quality of setting to rights. It's not an abstract virtue, it's an active verb that he sets things to rights, It's not uh, necessarily the department of those I can look out on, but I can look out on the congregation and see, it look, see at least four people who work in the hospital. And it's just occurred to me that if you... T- I know it's not the department of say of anyone I can think of who's here, but if you take a broken bone and, and, and fix it, put it back together, that's the process of righteousness uh, in Scripture, It's sticking things back the way they should be. But then there come objections in verse uh, 9. And the objections come from God's own people, according to the questions that he tells us this in, in, in verse 11. How can you, his people say, choose and anoint someone from outside the boundary of people. We're the ones who deserve to be anointed. We're the ones you need to bless if you're about to throw us into exile. And so we get these illustrations. To him who is but a potsherd, uh, one of those rough fragments uh, of Pottery. Can the the fragment of pottery address the potter with questions? Of course not. Can the child, certainly in that culture, address the parent with great big questions? Of course not. Those are the questions that God resents being asked. And then from verse 12 onwards, uh, the argument unrolls again. I made the earth. I set humankind upon it. I made the heavens themselves. So, of course, I can raise up Cyrus to serve my purposes, to set things to right. Whether or not Cyrus knows about those purposes, you are going to be the beneficiaries, oh, my people. So, stop complaining about who I'm choosing to use for my purposes. Beyond all argument back to me, I am the Lord. For I make. I am the Lord, for I make, but I'm also Lord because I save. Now, if if you're concerned with the um, sections on the screen, I I do confess these two sections are a bit mixed up. What I say about them is there, but verses 14 to 17 touch on speaking, and 18 to 21 touch on saving. So it's just a convenient way of looking, more than a claim that this is the only division that's possible. At the moment in the story, the Israelites are going to be in deep exile, deep shame and disgrace. But because of Cyrus, they will be saved, and others will be disgraced. And from verse 14, Isaiah looks to Egypt and to Cush, that's where Sudan is now. And those countries were a byword because of the wealth of the Nile. They were a byword for all that was rich and opulent and self-indulgent and idolatrous. So now those people are going to trek over to you, and they are going to bow down before you in Jerusalem, and they will confess that there is no God other than your God. It will seem extraordinary. It will be unlooked for. It will be a complete reversal of fortune. It will seem like a mystery. How did he do this? On the part of a God who seems to hide himself, verse 15. But at the end of it, you will see that it is them who are in shame, while you are saved by the Lord God Yahweh with an everlasting salvation, and you will never be put to shame. This is a God who makes, this is a God who saves. And verse 18 adds that thing that you and I so easily take for granted. This is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret. I speak the truth. I declare what is right. Those who worship idols... And we see them in in the verses that follow verse 20. They are completely ignorant. I challenge them, says God, to say what will happen, verse 21. I challenge them to speak, to declare, to present it. But they cannot, because they are dumb. How could they speak? But who did foretell this long ago? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me. A setting to rights, God, and a saviour, there is none but me. I make, I save, I speak. I wonder if it struck you as you kind of listened the first time when Martin was reading, and maybe now, that there are no logical limits to what God is saying in this contest With idolatry in this leading of history. It's not surprising that by verse 22, Isaiah speaking God's word says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. There are no limits. And that begins to take us forward. Because who is being described in the vision of John, who walks into history and addresses the church of Philadelphia as the one who opens doors that no one can shut? We miss the point of this chapter completely, if we confine its meaning to Cyrus. Because Cyrus, Messiah as he was, anointed for a purpose as he was, was anointed for this purpose to bring God's people to their ancient home and see them established as the people of the God who made the world, saves a people, and speaks his will. Cyrus is mighty, but he is only the instrument of God to get the people where he wanted them. As witnesses of a God who could snap his fingers and have mighty emperors do his bidding across the world. Just thought of another bit that... I can't resist quoting. Snaps his fingers and mighty emperors do his bidding. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Acheria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Anna and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. God snaps his fingers and mighty emperors do his bidding. And then back in Isaiah, we find set out in those last verses the worldwide scope of God's creation and salvation and speech. Isaiah is setting out a picture of a God before whom every knee will bow, verse 23. Sound familiar? Philippians 2. And again, don't miss that term, righteousness. The God who sets to rights by his strength, the God who has set his people to rights, so at the end they exult. Well, that's a canter through the chapter. But it means that as we read the summons at the end of it, knowing that there was a Messiah, a Messiah to come, Who opens doors that none can shut, and before whom every knee will bow. We have to come, don't we, to terms with the picture, the terrifying picture to our world of power that is set out in Isaiah 45. Once we're reminded that this is all to get God's people to the point where out of them will be born the one great Messiah, the Saviour of the world then we have to revisit these promises and claims here in this chapter and allow ourselves to be almost near stunned by their force. Whatever happened to Jesus, meek and mild? Can we set him on one side, over against this alarming iron God? Turn to me, I am God. Before me every knee will bow, and by me every tongue will swear not if we go, say, to the picture of Jesus in Revelation and see him as the angels have always known him, terrible in blood, mighty in battle, powerful in strength, glorious in victory. But we do need to face the question of sovereignty. Because if this God can be in charge of Cyrus, can he be in charge of Alex Salmond? If he's in charge of the emperor of Persia, Can he be in charge of the president of Ukraine? And if he is in charge of those mighty events, doesn't he bear responsibility for the lesser ones, to all that has happened in the prisons of Ukraine and Pakistan and Egypt and North Korea, and for all the wickedness of this world? And pretty soon you feel you're on a slide towards answers that just feel wrong. And that means that when ancient empires meet modern ones, when we move from Isaiah 14.5 tonight, to listening later on tonight, to whatever news has by then come out of Ukraine, we will forget Isaiah 45 and the sovereignty of God. Again and again, we find God asserting that in the movements of history, this or that conqueror was about his appalling bloody business Business for which he and he alone is responsible. But God was at work between and behind and beyond it, through it all. And the same is true here. Same is true with Jesus. Jesus is the mighty conqueror and also the tender shepherd who overthrows the mighty and cares for every single hair on your head. We take responsibility for evil because it is ours. But it is God who takes responsibility for weaving it to his good purpose. Although, as verse 15 says, his ways of doing it are often hidden. Finally, and this is tough, it's going to boil down not to whether you get a neat answer for your intellect. But whether you stand straight to insist upon the question or bow the knee before the only one who has an answer. And most of us struggle to bow the knee. We've just said we believe. And this sermon tonight will have done its work if it allows us to explain to ourselves and to others what it means to believe. When we believe in this God, he doesn't just make and save, he also speaks. He tells us what he has done, is doing, and will do. No dumb idol can do that. God dignifies his creation by doing precisely that, by communicating. So to believe in this God at bottom is to believe what he says. Look again at verses 22 and 23. Straight after the glorious assertion of sovereignty in verse 22 turn to me, be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other, comes the speech of verse 23. By myself I have sworn, and my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Because we read, we forget the power of an oral culture between life and speech. To believe in God is to believe God. To believe what he speaks and says about who he is, what he is, who we are, what we are. To believe in God is precisely not to believe ourselves, not to believe what seems most obvious, but to bow down before him and say, you are the one who knows, I don't. Faced with the choice to believe myself or believe you, I will believe you. It's not very different from what Will announced at the beginning of our confession from the mouth of Jesus, if anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. So don't be in any doubt concerning what believing is. It's not a believing about. It is a believing what God says. Now, I dare say that you have had a disappointing week. I hope you've also had a good week along the way. But somewhere in there, there will have been disappointments. It's normal. I've had them. Something didn't turn out the way you wanted. And you face next week with hopes that might come to pass or might not. We cannot take responsibility for everything that happens. But we can take responsibility for what we choose to believe when what happens is different from what we hoped for. If it's not this way, that God will bring all creation to bow before him, that way you hoped for, in your hoping that this little bit of creation would go your way. If it's not that way, then it will be another. The choice is to carry on believing God that he is this God tonight, or to disbelieve him, trust something else. And chances are that it will be a dumb idol. Again and again, we hear the name Yahweh. Every time you see in these chapters the words, the Lord, it's the personal name of God that's being used, Yahweh. And the name means, I am that I am. It has a a future to it as well. I, I will be who I will be. The only one in the cosmos that can claim he holds the future, even of his own self. And here we come tonight to communion to the memorial of the one who said, before Abraham was, I am. Imagine it, tonight, the meaning of all history, the history of ancient peoples and the history of your past week and your next one, is going to be put into your hands. If this is the body of a Christ before whom all will one day bow then every moment of my history and yours is in his hands. Let's pray. And for our prayer, I I just invite you, really, to imagine yourself in a free space somewhere. Standing, sitting, doing whatever. Might be your home, might be a... springtime field doesn't matter and i just want to you to imagine yourself doing what it says in that text that every knee will bow Lord God, we are promised that in our bowing, in our submitting, in our refusing to depend upon ourselves, we will be looking to you, for you are God and there is no other. And in our turning to you, in our bowing before you, in our speaking, by you. May it come to pass the promise that was in the end of our passage this evening. May we exult in the name of our God, for he is God and there is no other. Amen.